You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We're in Nehemiah 10. This is the 10th week. And the question is, how do you make a family mission statement? Whether it's personal or collective, the question is, how do you change things? How do you make things change in your life? How do you make change happen in culture? Well, basically, there are two ways to approach this. One is a top-down approach. So you put somebody in a position of authority, and they are demanding and commanding, and they say things like, well, this is what you're going to do, and this is law, and that's top-down leadership. Usually that comes with a pretty low degree of success because if you don't want to do something, if you want to disregard a law, you, you will. That's not the way that God approaches us. His is not a top-down, you're going to do this. His is more of an inside-out where God changes who we are, and that changes how we live. If you're new, I've got really good news for you. Jesus Christ is God. He lived without any sin. He died on a cross in our place for our sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Today, he's alive and well. He's hearing people's prayers. He's changing their lives And the way that this works is that we give our sin to Jesus and he then gives us a brand new life. And what happens is as you become a Christian, and most Christians don't understand this, we're not just forgiven, we're also changed. Now, a Christian is not someone who is perfect but they are new. They are being made new. And they're beginning a process that ends when God is finished with us with perfection in his kingdom. But the point is this. When you become a Christian, it's not top down. It's not God saying, you're going to do this. It's making you do this and do that. It's inside out. It's God giving you a new heart, the Bible says, so that you feel differently. He gives you a new mind so you think differently. He gives you new desires. And he gives you a new power by the Holy Spirit. And it's the way that what we like to say that being a Christian is not what we have to do. It's what we get to do because it's what we want to do. And so what happens in Nehemiah 10, the people meet God and their desires change. It's not top down rules and laws and regulations and fear and pressure. It's inside out. God made some changes in here so that changes can take place out there. And so what we're seeing, we've talked about this for 141 years. Generation after generation, these families who were Jewish claimed to be believers But they gave lip service and not lifestyle. They'd go to church, maybe on the holidays, and if they felt bad enough, they may give a little bit of money. Prayers, yeah, only when they were desperate. But other than that, God was really not 
in the center of their life. And then everything is going to change in Nehemiah 10. And they're going to start, it's going to start with the men. And so Nehemiah 10, the first 27 verses is a long list of names, 83 men's names. And why is this important? Because these men get together. And they're going to form a collective mission statement saying, here's how as God's men, we're going to do life and how we're going to handle our finances and our freedoms and our, and our faith. And we're going to do this openly and publicly so that we have accountability with each other. This isn't top down. This is inside out. These are people with new desires so chapter 10, the first 27 verses, a list of men who are senior leaders and prominent families, they're all agreeing to these changes. Imagine, just imagine your husband coming home and says, I went to church and God really showed me some things that were wrong in my life and I'm going to make some changes and you're going to get a new husband and I'm going to start praying with you. And I'm going to start being in God's word. And I'm going to go to church. And we're going to go to church together. And I'm going to be active with the kids. How many of you ladies would think, man, that'd be like the best day ever. Maybe even a miracle. Or the dad comes home and tells the kids, hey, you know what? I've done some wrong things. I really want your forgiveness. God has broken my heart. But... You're going to have a new dad going forward. That's what's happening here with these men. They're agreeing to do things that they are now going to prioritize. In addition, they are deciding that they are going to be a ostracized minority subculture. And this is really important. They know that they're going to do life. And there's, in these decisions, they're going to do life counter-culturally, which means different than the majority of people. They're going to be an ostracized, marginalized subculture. And you need to know, in our culture, that's where Bible-believing Christians are. We are not the majority. The majority of the culture does not value the things that God's people value. The majority of our culture does not believe the things that the Bible says. And so ultimately what they are determining is we can't change how everyone else lives, but we can take responsibility for how we're going to live as God's people. And what they're doing here, they are intentionally connecting all aspects of their life to a higher purpose of God. So all of a sudden, everything in life, everything is connected to this higher purpose that becomes extremely meaningful. That's what we'll see. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the five, we're going to look at five things they commit themselves to. I'm going to spare you the reading of the 83 men's names in Hebrew, which is really sparing me at the same time. And I want you to ask yourself, when we're seeing these five categories, these five things that they commit themselves to, which of these might be a strength for me? Which of them might be a weakness? If I were to make a mission statement for myself, for my family, what would be the things that I would need to make adjustments on? So here's the first things that they say. 
Starting at verse 28, the rest of the people, after the 83 men and their families, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. The first thing they say is, we're going to do what God's word says. That's the first thing. And now... The reason they need to say this is because for so long a period of time, that's not what they've been doing. And these people decide we need to get back to the Bible. And what they're saying here is we're going to come under God's word together. You know, our culture talks a lot about unity and the need to have less division and the need to get along. The key to unity is being under the same authority. You can't have unity unless you're under the same authority. Now, when God's people come together under the authority of God's word, then we can have unity under God's authority. So what you're seeing is a lot of people and a lot of families deciding we're going to do life differently and we're going to do it together. We're going to come under the authority of God's word and they will then talk about their schedule and their budget and their relationships. We should do the same as Christians because the truth is Jesus Christ is Lord over what? Everything, right? That means when we say Jesus is Lord, he is over our budget. My schedule is under Jesus My marriage is under Jesus. My kids are under Jesus. My hobbies are under Jesus. Everything is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this about the Bible. This is a good time of year to ask, in this past year, how has my Bible reading and Bible study been going? Next year, what would it look like if I made some adjustments? Here's why it's important to ask that question. In 2009, the Center for Biblical Engagement surveyed over 100,000 people, so a massive survey. And what they found was that people who read the Bible one, two, or three days a week had negligible, minimal change in their life. In other words, there was really no difference in someone's life who read the Bible one to three times a week as if they didn't read it at all. Same. But those who read the Bible, getting into God's word and letting God's word get into them four days or more per week, here's what they found that those were 416% more likely to give generously to the work of God. That they were 407% more likely to memorize scripture and 228% more likely to share their faith with others. On top of that, 
they were 62% less likely to drink in excess, 59% less likely to have sex outside of marriage, and 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. Here's what they found. When God's word becomes the majority of our week, our week changes. Look, I love to teach you the Bible. But if this is the only day of the week that your Bible is open or that you're seeing it read on the screen, it's literally having no effect on you. My hope is that you get activated and interested. So the first thing they do is they say is we will obey the scripture. Number two, they say we will only marry believers. Here's how they put it in verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. What happens here is sometimes an unbelieving guy comes and says, hey, I'd like to get to know your daughter. No. If you don't know Jesus, you don't get to know her. Because if you're not following Jesus, I don't want her following you. And what they say is, no, we're only going to marry believers. And this can't mean just people who believe in God. I mean, the Bible even tells us that demons believe in God. You got to go deeper than that. Do they love God? Do they follow God? Do they, are they walking with God? Are they growing in their relationship with Jesus? And they say, we're not going to allow our sons to take unbelieving women as wives. Too often, guys are looking for a good time and not a good legacy. And I'll tell you this, gentlemen, there are two decisions that are the most important decisions in your whole life. Number one, who is your God? And number two, who is your wife? Those are your two most important decisions. Ladies, same with you. Who's your God? Who's your husband? And this is statistically proven. A few weeks back, when I did a sermon series on marriage, I mentioned then a gentleman by the name of Dr. Bradford Wilcox. He is the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. And what he has done for decades is studied faith and marriage. And here's what he discovered. The lowest divorce rate is among Bible-believing, church-attending Christians. They also have the highest marital satisfaction rate. So we've all been lied to and told that Christians and non-Christians divorce at the same rate. They don't. The highest divorce rate and the lowest marital satisfaction rate are between two people who have different religious commitments or no religious commitment at all. Look, it's hard enough being married, right? But if you're both committed to different religions, different gods, I'll just say this controversially, one of you is bringing in the Holy Spirit, the other one is bringing in a demon. That's going to be a weird date night. And then you add kids to the mix. Lori and I have been faithfully married for 40 years. 
she's here. She doesn't know I'm going to ask this. I didn't talk to her beforehand. She's like, oh, no. <laughs> but I'm going to ask her a question and, and be honest. Not too honest, but be honest. <laughs> if one of us wasn't a Christian, would we still be married, do you think? <laughs> no, quickly. She said, no. You see, we believe that God has authority over both of us. And when we're going through something, we pray and invite God into the midst. So for us, I couldn't understand Lori. She couldn't understand me without knowing Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the most important person to both of us. And so ultimately what they're saying is we're not going to allow our children to make that tragic decision. Number three, then they talk about their business. We will conduct business ethically. This is their third commitment, and here's how we read it. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we will cancel all debts. So here's what they were doing. They had businesses open seven days a week. Why? More business. But that's not the way God told us to do business. Now, I get it. There are some industries, some, I mean, you know, or 24-7. You know, we're thankful for hospitals and law enforcement and firefighters and military. I get all of that. But the way that God works is that he had six days that he labored. The seventh day he rested. And it literally mentions in Genesis this seven-day week where our work is an act of worship. And then we worship during our Sabbath, during our resting on the seventh day. In the original language of Genesis, when it says that this is how God functioned, it literally says in the original Hebrew that for six days God breathed out and on the seventh he breathed in. The Sabbath day is for you to catch your breath. The Sabbath day is where you don't put your energy out. You pull your energy in. Some people ask, well, does it have to be on a certain day? Well, after the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul said this, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. In other words, pick a day. And people will then ask, well, what do you do on the Sabbath? Jesus says that we were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. It's meant as a blessing, not a burden, as a grace, not a law. So what causes you to rest? What causes you to recover? What causes you to replenish? Going to church? Absolutely. And the Bible says, let's not neglect meeting together. You want to go on a hike after church? Great. You want to read a, Bible, a book in the afternoon, whether it's a Bible or not? Great. You want to take a nap because church wore you out? Great. <laughs> you want to hang out with the kids and grandkids? Absolutely. 
This is the day that God wants us to enjoy him in relationship. He wants you to have time with him and the people and the things that he's given to you. So here's what they're saying. We want to orient our business in such a way that we're going to let everyone get a Sabbath. If you're a business leader, you have two choices. You can work seven days a week without God's blessing, or you can work six days a week with God's blessing. And a lot of people are like, well, I think I can get more out of seven days. I'll tell you this. I think you can get more out of six days with God's blessing. And there are some companies who have operated under this principle. And the two most readily that come to mind, Chick-fil-A, I knew you'd get that one, Lord's Chicken, and Hobby Lobby, right? What they're saying is they're actually deciding that the lordship of God extends to their business and how they do business. And the fourth thing they commit themselves to, they say, we will give generously. And now there's a long list of the things they're going to commit to give. This is verses 32 to 39. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table for regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths and the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, of our herds, of our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God in the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are kept. What they're saying is, okay, God is first in our life. He's first in our schedule with the Sabbath. We're giving him the first day of the week, and now he's going to be first in our budget. We're going to give him the first fruits of our income. Jesus says this, recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, giving is a part of our worshiping. The Bible also says that God loves a cheerful giver. There is something real enjoyable about being a generous person because you share in the heart of God. 
As we give, what we are doing is we are loving. Giving is loving. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So as Christians, you say, I want to be a loving person. I want to be a worshiping person. Then be a generous person. And some will ask, well, what percentage? I think that's a great question to ask the Lord. And that's something we're going to invite you to do in January. And lastly, number five, they say, we will make church a priority. What they say in Nehemiah 10, the last sentence is this. We will not neglect the house of our God. You've got a house for your family. This is God's house for our church family. And they say we are not going to neglect it. And what they're saying is, first and foremost, the church is going to become a priority for them and their family. How many of you have had a season where church was not a priority? And what you quickly realized is, if it's not a priority, you simply stop being involved. And let me say this too, the quickest way to get connected to a church is to serve. Because when you serve, you meet all kinds of people and you start to build relationships. And we live in a day where if God isn't first on your schedule, he isn't first in your budget and first in your priorities, there's not a whole lot left at the end. You're like, well, I'll give to God at the end. You're going to spend it before you get there. Well, I'm going to spend time with God. Well, if he's at the end of your priorities, something is going to cut in line And you're not going to have any time for him. If church is not a priority, it's eventually going to go away. You know, there's so many things in our day. You wake up and one of the kids doesn't want to go. You're tired. There are games on TV. Uh, Maybe it's a hobby that gets in the way or heaven forbid your kids join a sports league. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to cultivate a whole character in a child, not just an athlete. I I do love sports. My two daughters played sports when they were younger. We're not against it. (laughs) But as a family, you've got to decide where are we structuring our priorities. And so what they do, these men, they make a family mission statement. And it's the perfect time of year for you to do this. This is a good time to look back and say, okay, what adjustments should we have made? And then look forward. Okay, what adjustments do we need to make in the coming year? And I would encourage each of you to take time this week and think through all of these issues we've seen in Nehemiah 10. Scripture, family leadership, worship of God, marriage, business, finances, church participation. It's a really good time to actually look at this list and decide Okay, what adjustments do we need to make or what adjustments do I need to make? That's exactly what they're doing. And let me share one more thing with you and then I might close. As we're going through Nehemiah, I'm thinking, okay, our culture, their culture was very secular, very pagan, very godless, very sexual, very rebellious, and it wasn't going to change. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then God's people decide, well, here's how we're going to do life as the church. Here's how we're going to live godly lives in our marriages, in our families, at our house, in our lives. 
There will be other times in history where God's people will then stand up and say, well, we don't expect the world to love and serve the Lord, but we want to. So how do we create a place where God can, where we can live with God in a counter-cultural kind of way, where we can live according to our God-given biblical convictions and values? How can we live where we see the difference that Jesus makes? where we can talk about marriage and family and forgiveness and relationship and finances and love all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we begin to press into that. Other people will see God at work and it'll give you an opportunity to say, let me tell you what's going on here. Why don't you come and see? I mean, look, there are some people who are joyful There are some people who are forgiven and it's made a difference for them. There are some people who have learned to forgive other people and their relationships got healed. There are some guys who really love their wives and some kids that have great moms and dads. And it seems like the whole world has fallen apart, but these people's lives aren't. These are God's people. And they would love for you to come and see the difference that God makes and then talk to you about their God. I believe that's exactly what's going on in Nehemiah 10. And then I want to share this with you because this is really, really cool. In Nehemiah 10, you might be thinking after reading this and after hearing it, you're like, wouldn't it be great if a bunch of men decided we're going to love the Lord and we're going to come together, we're going to live as God's people, and we're going to build up men to bless women and children. Well, last year, we began a series on this very thing. It's called Every Man a Warrior. And to date, a total of 20 men have taken or are now taking this course that takes about eight months to complete. And here's what I would tell you. Of those 20, there are guys who are retirees, there are guys who are young parents, there are guys who are newly married, and we're learning more about faith and marriage and parenting, and finances, that these men are really going to try to love their wives. They're going to try to figure out how to raise their kids. These are grandpas trying to figure out how to love their adult children and their grandkids. And it's not that we just believe the Bible. We seek to live it out. We don't want to just read Nehemiah 10 and say, oh, that had to be wonderful way back then. It's like, no, that can still be wonderful. I don't know what's going to happen and what's all going on in your lives. But I know the things that are going to be better for these 20 men and their families. I know that their wives are going to be loved more. And their children are going to get blessed more. And God's people can live life differently. No matter what's going on in the world. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.